0: Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network. I am your host, Ari Barbalat, and I'm honored today to be in dialogue with Menachem Kaiser, who is the winner of the 2022 Sammy Rohr Prize for Jewish Literature. We will be discussing his new book, Plunder. A Memoir of Family, Property, and Nazi Treasure, published in 2021 by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. I'm grateful to be with you today. Menachem, thank you for your generosity.
1: Sure. It's great to be here, Ari. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Thank you. To begin, uh, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? And were there any formative events in your early life that stimulated the scholar you would later become?
1: Um, sure, I grew up in Toronto, uh, where I, you're where, where you're from, right, Ari? Thornhill. Thornhill. So I grew up in Toronto, not in Thornhill. I grew up. Mm. Um, I grew up in, in the Orthodox community. I went to Orthodox schools my whole life. Um, any sort of, as an interesting question. Formative experiences. Uh, you know, there wasn't. I didn't. There wasn't really, I didn't know anyone who was a writer growing up. I didn't think that was a viable career path. I'm still not sure it's a viable career path, but we're, we're trekking on. But um, I will say there was like a real uh, care and concern towards words in my house. You know, uh, my father's a talented writer. My mother's a talented writer and an, also an exceptional editor actually. And I remember like when I was really young, you know going to, with to them for help with like school assignments or essays and how much they would beat me up over things like word choice wow. which drove me crazy i was like who cares i'm sure I, you know you would get that thing you're like oh you get my point mm-hmm. you know and they'd really drill drill the lesson that you know words matter and mm-hmm. so and also uh you know torah study. there was a real caricature for close reading And so, you know, I went to yeshiva after high school for a few years, Um, wasn't seriously considering writing in any real way, but uh, I spent a lot of time with language, you might say, Mm. uh, for a really long time. And um, after that, you know, I kind of wanted to be kind of, I would say, a journalist or kind of an essayist. Um, And so I did that for a few years, and then I got more interested in actually writing fiction. Um, where I really felt like the the care, that sort of attention towards language was most celebrated and was sort of the most interesting. And um, so I sort of dropped everything in like 2014. I went to grad school for fiction. Uh, and then this sort of, uh, I sort of wrote off doing um, sort of long form nonfiction until this story um, kind of fell into my lap. And so I came back to it.
0: Wonderful. What inspired you to write this book?
1: Basically what, you know, I ended up spending, okay, to give a little context. So in 2010, I moved to Lithuania on a Fulbright and that was sort of my first entry into Eastern Europe. Um, I didn't go for any uh, family reasons. My family's not from Lithuania. I didn't have any sense of them. I didn't... Um, you know, my grandfather, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, but I didn't really know anything about them, and I, to be honest, I wasn't all that curious, and so I didn't really grow up with any sort of yearning for knowledge about them. It was sort of like a blank past. Uh, when I was in Lithuania, um, my research proposal—what was it? It was like a it was sort of a thing about Yiddish being like a like a post-language, a post-vernacular. That's what I called it. And, um, but the, the second I got there, I realized my entire proposal was hopelessly misguided. Mm. Like it would have been an impossible thing to study. And like institutional, it was a mess. My academic advisor had quit and called me a traitor. It was wow. just, just <laughs> it was a huge mess. And so, uh, I ended up sort of a little bit of drift, but then I ended up, um, I got a job weirdly as a tour guide for the Vilna ghetto. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, but I didn't know anything about the Vilnius ghetto. I didn't even know where it was. But yet, I became a tour guide, so which meant I had to learn. And so that I ended up, you know, doing what I could. I didn't want to embarrass myself on the tours, and I learned. Uh, and that that was that was a, like sort of an eye opening experience. Like I grew up going to these Orthodox schools, having somewhat of a education in like Holocaust history, but pretty weak and pretty thin. And then, you know, when I started doing my own research about the film, the ghetto was very eye opening to see how sort of how complicated and how rich it was. Like, it wasn't merely just about death, there was like a great deal to sort of study. And like, I was also really eye opening to see how much this has, hasn't been done. And so I ended up dedicating quite a bit of time to the film, the ghetto. Um, over the next few years, my main research project was uh, doing a digital map. So, sort of compiling um, all these different sources into sort of putting them on a map that was accessible to anyone so they could sort of, you know, tour the ghetto on their own. Uh, I tried to write a book about it. I failed. I didn't really get very far. I ended up doing uh, like three or four sort of long research-intensive essays um, about different aspects of the ghetto. Uh, But what happened was towards the end of that year, I ended up getting invited to go to Krakow for Rosh Hashanah. And uh, up until that point, I really never, I could have, I probably would never have gone to Poland, even though that's where my family's from. Like, I never really felt a reason to, I never really felt a pull. Um, and I went, to be totally frank, the first time I went, I went only because I was promised kind of to a good time. Like, I wasn't going for any Holocaust reasons and certainly wasn't going for any family reasons. But in Poland, it was, um, I found it to be like an unbelievably interesting and rich and complicated place. And, and also a lot of fun, and so over the next few years, I sort of made crack on my base, uh, and um, I found it to be like very stimulating, super interesting. And I think for anyone who's like interested in questions of memory and history, uh, and you know, taking into account like the current politics, I think Poland is um, kind of where it's at. And, uh, but even then, I still was like not really chasing anything about my story, not doing anything in research until 2015. So, about five years after I was first got, uh, I got these sort of documents about my grandfather's building. And I started doing, I began the reclamation process. Um, and still at that point, I was not interested in writing about it. I didn't see a way to write interestingly uh, about the story. I found it to be like perhaps like a meaningful story to me, but I didn't feel like I had anything new to say. Um, and then in 20, a year later, that whole Michigan happened with the treasure hunters. And mm-hmm. that at that point, the story basically just got so weird that I felt I had no choice but to at least try and write it. And so that's at that point, I would say the book became a book, which was basically a year after the story happened, which is an interesting distinction of people that's often invisible to the reader. As like the story happens before the writer starts thinking about it as a package story. And so, but my, your entire attitude changed, right? My, my attitude changed at that point. I'd be started like recording it, thinking in terms of narrative, um, thinking how I might sell it, to be honest, uh, thinking what was interesting, what was not interesting. And so it's a, it's a different way to experience, um, you know, like quote unquote personal journey.
0: What do you hope that readers will gain from this book?
1: Um, what do I hope that readers will gain? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I you know I, it's, it's sort of because I I like that readers come to it with their own with their own stuff. You know, I don't have like a moral. I don't. I certainly don't have an agenda. I don't see this as a sort of like, let's call it memory activism. And so uh, I'm not out to prove the point. I feel like if readers find something meaningful or even interesting or even funny or entertaining, then that's great. Indifference would be bad. Mm. You know, it, that, that, you know, indifference is not great, but if it's indifferent, they shouldn't really finish the book unless they don't like me for some reason and want ammunition.
0: What does your book teach us about the memory of memory and the history of history?
1: Uh okay let me parse that the memory of memory and the history of history <sighs> what does my book teach me about the memory of memory i don't know i don't know what do you think you're 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 probably better positioned than i am
0: i thought there was a lot in the book that says a lot about about what could be called post-memory. And there are a lot of themes about lessons oh, in the book agree. about epistemology and how oh, 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 um, and doing. how memory is understood. For example, you write on page 262, we attach such high stakes to our memory journeys and apply such strict yeah. ba- binaries to the people we encounter along the way. Oh, oh, they either help or they frustrate, they either care and are open-hearted or they are fearful and close-hearted. But often it's much more banal. It, it was easy to see that this woman would beg off, politely or not politely, because she couldn't deal with this right now. These three men, these three strangers, including two from other country, who had knocked on the door and were chattering about <laughs> World War II. I, you
1: know, it's interesting. I, the, one, the you know, I, I'm not. I didn't write this book or approach the story from a sentimental place. Mm-hmm. Because I never, it wasn't me sort of trying to forge a relationship or a connection with my grandfather because I never knew him. And I I was really sort of adamant about not pretending like I had a sentimental connection with them. And so, uh, you know, in my attempts to be honest, uh, I felt I had to be sort of pretty transparent about the fact that, like, I am working within a genre. And so the things I'm doing uh, play into tropes and sort of either expected or maybe even unexpected. And um, and so like, I could not imagine writing a book like this without sort of commenting, you might say, or at least referencing the fact that there's like a larger uh, genre with that I'm working within is that like, you know, growing up the grandchildren survivors, um, we have, we're carrying a lot of baggage. And I don't just mean that like, you know, in, in a lot of senses of like how we remember what access points we have. Uh, is it our responsibility to uphold that? Is it our responsibility to subvert that? Um, I don't have answers to those questions, but I like I, I would never pretend like they're not there. And like, I think someone coming from a much more sentimental much more personal place with whatever their object is, whether it be a person or an artifact or something they're trying to do. I, you know, I just, I didn't have that. And so like for a way, like my plot line is trying to figure out what it is I'm doing. And, like, you know, the whole mission is, gets very screwy pretty quickly, and like nothing goes as planned. But I wouldn't say that's the point, but like, uh, it's sort of the meat of the story is that I mean, it's, it's me trying to figure it out rather than me trying to, than me achieving or
0: failing. Why did you not write this book as a novel?
1: You know, I it there's yeah there's a part in the in the book towards the end where I raise that question myself, and I sort of um, I emphasize the fact that in a lot of ways it would have been easier to write it as a novel because there were so many gaps in my knowledge, especially about the person I was ostensibly trying to get closer to. Um, but then the day I don't think it would have worked as a novel. I think uh, again, like I just mentioned, I think the sort of the the fact that things are so ambiguous and opaque and confusing and sort of the stakes aren't clear at a point And that's sort of, to me, there's a lot of tension there and trying to figure out what the stakes actually are. Um, that That's something that sort of requires, you know, an approach that I, can't, I don't know how you would do it in a novel. Uh, the novel has to make sense, to be honest. It's sort of like there's a sort of linearity. Or it's a very sort of weird experimental novel in which you know I wasn't going to set out to do um, and also uh, so sort of how the you know I wrote this as a book proposal first, and I was able to sell it and so there's certainly a sort of like a i don't want to pretend like that the market you know for these kinds of books was something I didn't consider at all um, I wasn't really, you know, in order to write, to sell a novel, you basically have to write the entire novel and then you can sell it. I wasn't that committed to it. Um, I wrote a book proposal. I felt like I had a really good true story that sort of uh, had appeal for reasons, both noble and a little crass. And um, I sort of put that a proposal on the world to see if there was interest. And there was. I think a a tougher question is if there hadn't been any interest, if no one had bought the book proposal would have, would I have written it anyway? And yeah, I don't think so. I think the answer is no. So at that point, maybe I would have sort of taken the material and tried something new and made it into, you know, I would have kept on with the, um, the reclamation effort. I would have kept up to some degree with the treasure hunters, but uh, you know, certainly there wouldn't have been in that like a uh, commitment or kick in the pants to write the book
0: what contribution does your book make to the study of the holocaust i don't know uh,
1: not not for me to say it wasn't for others to say i all i could hope is that you know the thing that one other thing that someone wrote early on one of the reviewers that i felt uh, particularly meaningful was that it was the first in the genre that's self-aware that it's a genre that to me, you know, that to me felt like an achievement. That to me felt like an interesting piece of criticism.
0: How can your book help survivors of other genocides and mass atrocity situations? For example, what might your book say to a Yazidi survivor of ISIS or an Armenian survivor of the Armenian genocide? Does it offer anything to people in other communities coming to terms with genocide?
1: I wonder. you know, my, I, I think there's a sort of, I don't, yeah, to, to direct survivors, I don't know if I'm speaking to their experience.
0: Or to I a descendant think, of?
1: Yeah, so someone for whom to try, like, you know, I, I'm i a this, you know, my grandparents were survivors, went through what they went through, and yet it feels so distant for me. I like, and I, it wasn't until like my mid to late 20s when I realized that, that was somewhat unusual that, you know, a lot of my friends who have grandparents who are survivors have like a much more personal connection, you know, so to speak with that trauma. They feel like it's been passed down in some respect. I didn't feel like that at all. I think there's an interesting conversation to be had, like, to what sense my father was affected as growing up as survivors and me and my siblings have been having a 25 year debate about this, but, um, I, you know, I, the only thing I could offer is that, you know, there's, I do struggle with how to tell my personal story in the face of unimaginable suffering of ancestors. And so I, you know, I have nothing to offer in terms of suffering. I wonder, hopefully maybe a tiny bit, I have something to offer in terms of how to say a personal story.
0: What does your book reveal about genocide denial? Um,
1: what does my book reveal about genocide denial? Uh, I, you know, I, I have a chapter on conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. And so there's, um, I, you know, that was by far in a way the most research intensive chapter. And so to me, what was sort of enlightening and interesting and unexpected was that there was a real convergence Of motivations of uh, you know call it sort of overt and overtly anti-semitic or xenophobic conspiracy theories with stuff that would strike most people as somewhat banal or even trivial or frivolous conspiracy theories like you know nazi ufos or something Um, i think upon a closer examination there's like a real they share sort of a an underlying belief structure you might say
0: In what ways was the research and writing process that you invested in this book therapeutic for you? Did you gain any closure as, as you had, that, from this process or have you yet to as, achieve personal closure?
1: Uh, I, said, I will say no one has asked me that. Um, but, uh, the writing process, no. I didn't find it to be therapeutic. I found it to be torturous, but I think once the book was finished and out in the world, there's definitely a sense of closure Um, because you're like, this is the story, even though the story's ongoing, like I sort of contained it Um, and it's, you know, it has bound, it's bounded. And so there's stuff that happens before and there's gonna be stuff that happens after, but I sort of corralled it and wrestled it into a coherent or hopefully coherent narrative and put it out into the world. And so you feel sort of like you've discharged it in a way. And so I don't know if that's exactly closure, but it feels like the story goes from ongoing to something contained um, and coherent to someone who's not me.
0: How has your living family received this book? What does their response been?
1: Um, well, there's my immediate family. Um, and so I think, um, you know, my, for my father in particular, I think it was like a real gift for him because I think it was taking something that he didn't know much about or not really invested in. And he, I sort of gave him my experiences into his family history. I, you know, some of the stuff was difficult. Um, I did have a very intense argument, with my aunt about whether or not a sofa had a plastic cover on it. Uh well, and it was just sort of like a um side remark in an initial draft. But um for my extended family, I I don't know. I don't I don't think, you know, I think they sort of were, you know, proud, but you know, not that invested. And then but largely I think like for my immediate family, this was something like it's you know it's a book it's out in the world a lot of you know quote unquote strangers have read it but you know it's really in some way it's for my family it's a way of saying i dove into our family history in the most intense way i know how and here it is like for the years while i was writing the book you know and i you know i i i, I would say like the story is takes place over 4 years let's say 2015 to 2019 and during that time, family members would like ask me what I was doing and I would tell them, but it made no sense. It just wasn't coherent. It would just be like, I'd go to Poland, have a weird time, come back and report. And no one could really follow. Everyone was just like, this sounds like Monafim Saini adventures in Poland. But the book, again, it sort of puts it all there, you know, in a way that makes, you know, what would, what I went through and what I thought about the process accessible. So in a way, it's, it's sort of like a, Extremely ornate family album.
0: What was a typical Shabbat dinner like in your family growing up, and what are some of your family's minhagim?
1: Uh, what was the Shabbat dinner like? You, um, you know, it's it's more. It was you know we, everyone we were from was an Orthodox family, so a Shabbat dinner was you know not not just mandatory. It was something beyond mandatory. It was in uh, an, an immovable event and so you know it would i would go to shul with my father on um, friday night uh come home you know in the years when i my older sister is nine years older than me uh so she and she left home you know in her early 20s and so but like you know before then all the kids lived there there's six of us and um we'd have a shabbat you know i call it a shabbos a shabbos dinner um it's funny because like, I don't, it's, you know, having met other people who've had Shabbat dinners, they they have this sort of, they look back on it as a sort of uh, festive thing. And like, I, to me, it's like, I, I'm very nostalgic about it and very fond memories about it. But it was, it was, it was more than like a scheduled thing. It was just like a fact of life. I, I could not imagine life without Shabbos. Like I didn't. I, what would that look like? And I didn't know anyone who didn't do Shabbos. So it's like, yeah, I could get romantic about it. But on the other hand, I was just like, it felt like such a basic component of, of family life.
0: What does your book teach us about justice and injustice?
1: What does my book teach us about justice and injustice, uh, you know, that maybe just that it's it's messy. There's a sort of messiness to it. I think we sometimes inherit narratives that, that feel really clear um, until you examine them a little bit closer. And then you have um, different people to take into account, different histories to take into account and things often aren't zero sum and often aren't necessarily super legible and um it's just you know that it's a lesson I learned, you know, in terms of let's say reclamation, which if you would have asked me six or seven years ago, there would have been I would have been like, yeah, there's it's obviously a very just and noble process, but up close it's it's certainly a lot messier. And so you you know, walk this fine line between um feeling justified and also sympathetic. Uh, and so yeah, there was a struggle in, uh, in some of my experiences and also in, in writing.
0: Can you describe the contents of Zadrutami Smirchi? What does it- talk- Yes. Uh, what sure. does it tell us about your father's life and can it be considered literature? Why or why not?
1: So Zadrutami Smirchi is a Holocaust memoir or Holocaust diary written by a man named Abraham Kaiser, who was a prisoner in the Gross Rosen concentration camps. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was my grandfather's closest surviving relative. So a first cousin. Um, it is a book that was published in Israel in the early fifties, but really hadn't, didn't really go anywhere. I, you know, it, it was very quickly out of print and is basically impossible to find. I had to spend, uh, like a few years tracking down a copy and then, uh, but it was also published in Poland in the early sixties. And there it's had like a very interesting life because it's become sort of a extremely important foundational text for treasure hunters owing to some of the details um, inside the book about uh, something called project Riza, which is a large Nazi infrastructure project that is shrouded in mystery. And so, uh, so your, what was the the sort of second part of the question? If it's considered Holocaust Sh- literature, it?
0: should it be considered literature? Why or why not?
1: I don't know. I'm not. Uh, I'm not so big on like gatekeeping. I don't know. I don't know yeah. what that stake like. of it is literature or it's not literature. But you know, it, it's you know, on one sense, it's historically, it's an important book. It's uh, for sure. There's like um it's one of the primary if not only sources we have for some of the concentration camps. Um, that's number one for two, within the treasure hunter community, it is a, you know, staggeringly important book and, um, for some information and that's for good reasons and not great reasons. Uh, beyond that, it happens to be like an unbelievably moving book. Um, and, uh, so it's sort of a beautiful and poignant and tragic book and it's like well written. And like he had a real, he was just, he would happen to be just a a very, very talented writer. Um, And then, but even beyond that, I I think, you know, when we talk about Holocaust literature, it's, it's sort of hard to apply this like similar rubrics that we do to sort of, you know, random memoirs. And so like, when we have to talk about value, yeah, they, they just, they sort of serve another function. Um, and so it is, it, it's a, it's a, it is, in different contexts, a remarkable book. And the fact that it exists in different contexts, I think is remarkable in its own right.
0: What was Riese? Can you comment on what it was intended to be and-
1: Wait, what was what, sorry?
0: The Riese. Oh, Riese, yeah. Riese.
1: Okay. So uh, what was Riza? Yes. Uh, so Riza was a uh, a series of underground tunnels uh, built by the Germans using mostly Jewish slave labor towards the end of the war in Silesia, which was then Germany and is now Poland, um, not far outside of the city called Wabdorch. Um, these, these sort of subterranean complexes encircled um, a mountain called Owl Mountain. And um, none of the seven tunnels, tunnels is kind of a bad word actually. They're more, they are they weren't just tunnels, they were sort of complexes. Um, and so none of the seven of these complexes were finished. And so the ones, some of them are just tunnels, like very sort of tunnels inside of a mountain, but the ones closer to completion are enormous. Um, we're talking like square kilometers and footage. You know, ceilings that are 20, 30 meters tall, uh, like giant grids. These just, you know, basically they were underground neighborhoods. Um, and so what makes them, they're like very strange on their own right, very bizarre, baffling uh, structures. What makes them like truly enigmatic is the fact that there's basically there's virtually no primary documentation as to what they were used for. And so we, we don't have like solid documentary basis to say uh, what the Germans were planning to do with them. Now, like put it into a sort of context of the German war effort, we do have a pretty good idea because you know the Germans did build a lot of undergrounds and we know what they did with their undergrounds, which was generally either doing underground factories or making some of underground headquarters. Now the scale of this is like just enormous, and also the timing is, is kind of weird. So you had like, um, it was all built towards the end of the war. Some of the actually construction continued after the war. And so uh, Albert Speer, you know, the the German the Nazi architect, mentions in his memoirs that over a bit, what is the equivalent of a billion dollars uh, was spent on construction, uh, which was, sp- there's particularly in 1943, 1944, when like the, you know, when the Third Reich was stretched thin, to say the least, uh, represents a, uh, like an astounding amount of money. And he also says that more concrete was used for Riza than the entire German-occupied Europe had at its disposal disposable, disposable for air raid shelters. Wow. um and so, and also the secrecy is also kind of strange, like um the fact is the Germans did make a lot of effort to sort of hide uh what they were doing and why, and so it has been uh kind of a compelling mystery uh for a lot of people
0: Why was it such a priority for the Nazis?
1: I don't know it's hard to say I think you know yeah. It's like one of those. We this is the things you would need. Sort of, I, you know, um, all all we have is sort of speculation about that. I think one of the things is the they saw this maybe as a haven. So, uh, like Berlin was getting bombed very heavily. This was on the eastern front. So, sort of, that's uh, sorry. not on the eastern front it was much further east than Berlin. Um, uh, away from the front, uh, much safer from uh, Allied bombings. So there could be, could have been a plan to sort of move a kind of headquarters there or an outpost. And so, but I don't know, I think all that is uh, speculation.
0: How did you first come to learn about Rieza in 2015? Can you tell this story?
1: Yeah, you know, I did, there was these two guys in 2015, these two so-called treasure hunters made an announcement that uh, they had found something called the Golden Train, which was, uh, and the Golden Train is this ostensibly legendary train full of looted Nazi gold. Sorry. That uh, the Germans uh, had taken from Wroclaw, which was then Breslau and so part of Germany. And while the Russians were approaching, they loaded like 44 crates of gold or something Put it on a train and sent it towards Berlin, but you know, en route, it got diverted and hidden inside of a mountain. So, this is an old legend uh, that there's this train full of gold hidden somewhere in the Silesian countryside. And then in 2015, these two treasure hunters, you know, held a press conference and uh, said they found it. And for kind of pretty interesting reasons the entire world believed them. And so it got a an enormous amount of press. And so like, you have like the New York Times, the New Yorker, BBC, Fox, ABC, CNN, like all the, basically the, the world media descended on the small town of Wojciech. And, you know, I, along with everyone else sort of read about it. And like, I, you know, at that point I was spending a lot of time in Poland uh, doing sort of Holocaust related research And like, I, you know, along with sort of the rest of the world, I was reading about it and being like, what on earth is this stuff? And so I was really uh, struck by it. You know, I I read about the Golden Train. You read about Project Riza, the Treasure Hunters. It was all this sort of sexy and exciting stuff. Um, And I was just sort of, uh, I don't know, pretty taken with it.
0: There are a number of lesser known camps and subcamps presented in your book. I'd be curious to ask you about some of them. For example, can you describe the Kaltwasser subcamp? camp uh, What was it like there?
1: Oh, uh, so these were, the camps you're referring to are sort of, the, the Gross Rosen concentration camp is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, network of concentration camps. And so it was all in the Southwest, uh, in Silesia. And it comprises, I, I, we don't even know the exact number. It's somewhere between like 100 and 130, I think, um, concentration camps. And then among that, there was a sort of a series of camps that were dedicated to providing labor for the reason, for construction of reason. And those were the camps that Abraham Kaiser was in uh and he's sort of ferried between i believe it was eight camps in total and so called and none of them they're all gone as in they're they're sort of uh they've been disappeared i'd say and so like they some of them have a plaque or something but mostly largely they you know in order to go see the camps or what remains of them you you need to get the gps coordinates go there and see nothing like see a field or a supermarket or uh, a parking lot or whatever it is and so Kaldfosser is just a field <laughs> it's just it's just a field behind a house um, the only the, what we know about Kaldfosser is primarily from actually Abraham's memoir and so but I, I don't have the details offhand I, I remember it All I remember is I think, and it's, I think he said something like about 2,000 inmates or something, but I I can't speak with uh, any authority or certainly not at my fingertips about the conditions of the camp.
0: Is it okay to ask you about some of these, uh, some other subcamps? Tannhausen, Schotterwerk, Wuskeiersdorf, yeah. Wolf's
1: you know, etc. All, really, all I really know about them is what was in Abraham's all actually all pretty much everyone, mm-hmm. anyone knows about them is what was in Abraham's memoir or a few. There's a few other sources, but I, I don't I don't have that I don't have that ready. I, I can't yet Sure. Um, uh, you could I could say that the conditions were very bad. You know, um they were they were they were pretty horrible and but they were labor camps and uh everyone would march off. To work on these construction sites which were humongous uh, infrastructure projects
0: how did you find abraham's grave in holon what was the cemetery like and how did it feel to be there
1: um i you know i didn't know where he was buried i didn't know anything about him except what was in the book and um so I, after a couple years, years um, in the project, uh, I made, I was in touch with the Museum of Gross Rosen, which w- they were the ones who published the recent editions of the book. And they told me that um, you know, the information had come from, and they'd collaborated with, with uh, Abraham's niece. And so Abraham had a sister who survived the war, uh, who sorry, who got out before the war and moved to Israel. And so, and that woman had two daughters, um, and one of whom was still alive and one of whom died right around that time. Uh, her name was um, Mira. And so, Mira um, was like a very, very well, like one of the most famous children's book authors in Israeli history, actually, and a very, and a celebrated poet. And so Mira, um, basically, she was the, the holder of the family history. And so she was the one who collaborated with uh, the Museum of Gross Rosen to provide them with all this information. And now, so Mira and Shula, uh, these two sisters, uh, Shula is still alive, um, Mira has passed, but their kids, uh, their kids are, are alive mostly in Israel. And so I went to Israel to talk to them um, to see what I could find. And they, yeah, one of them told me that Abraham was buried in Cholom, where, you know, he lived, uh, you know, the last years of his life. And so I didn't know anything about that. I just went to the cemetery and uh, looked for the grave.
0: Uh, there's, there's a quote that I'd be curious to ask you about. Uh, you write as follows on page 12. What are these descendants searching for? Sometimes it's straightforward. Sometimes the questions are answered with a visit to an archive or a conversation with an elderly local. But I think they're often searching for answers to questions. They don't know how to ask questions that cannot be formed. If you grew up around Holocaust survivors, you know what I'm talking about. If not, try to imagine a survivor's inner state. Can you explain further what you mean and what those words mean to you?
1: I, you know, it, I think, you know, it's, it was funny, you know, when I got a little older and uh, started meeting people outside of my community and understood that not everyone had a survivor grandparents, like we're growing up, I would say every single person I knew was Jewish. And from among my friends, I would say it was like 80%, 90%, maybe had at least one grandparent who was still alive, who had gone through the Holocaust. And so it was nothing. It was it was nothing out of the ordinary. And then, sort of, you get a little bit older, and you don't spend that much time. But once in a while, you're like, "Oh, I wonder what Bubby went through," or and and you're just like, "You, you can't. There's just a wall." And you're just like, "Here's this woman." And to me, Bubby was this like the sweetest, most gentle, most loving, uh, caring, you know, Polish sort of immigrants. You're like a little always a little scared a little meek who just loved nothing more than feeding us and then on you could take a step back you're like oh and what did she go through the war and i had no details but it was also sort of like just i don't know you just couldn't i don't know your brain sort of can't sort of connect like this idea of like this woman went through that and so but on the other hand it was it was very ordinary And so, like, it's not even something I discussed with my friends because it was just every single one of us had that. And then later in life, when you, you know, when it would come up that my grandparent was a survivor and people would be have a reaction for a long time, it really took me back because I was like, okay, but like what? Okay. And then, yeah, and then sort of you grow up and you mature and you sort of try to sort of relate to who they are, what they went through and you realize just, uh how difficult that is.
0: What memoirs of other descendants of Holocaust survivors inspired you in thinking about this book and conceiving this book? Were there any that you thought to emulate? Were there any similar memoirs that made an impact on you as you were brainstorming this book?
1: Um, By and large, I I would like say I can answer sort of inverted. I think, you know, the books I read are the book, like, by and large, I I find them to be pretty uninteresting um, and feel very similar to me. So it's not to feel very similar to one another and are sort of trying, like, like, I just didn't relate to a lot of them. And I think a lot of them, especially the ones who go to Poland or these countries, um, they go and they have these insights and they, you know, the, they feel that they're very profound and they kind of are, but they're also the same insights that everyone who's gone has had. And so like, I wasn't, I, I honestly, I sort of avoided the memoir for a long time, the, the genre for a long time. I, there weren't many that I found um, compelling. I, I think the ones that are trying to do something a little bit bigger um, are sort of trying to think their way through what it is they're doing are sort of aware of sort of the historical and cultural context in which they're operating. And so, you know, I guess it's a book that I actually feel kind of ambivalent about, but I like admire the ambition is Daniel Mendelssohn's The Lost. Um, he, he, he's coming in with like, it's a very, it's a much more ambitious book than a lot of these memoirs. Um, yeah, the truth is I'm not that well-read in it because I, I would pick these books up and then put them down really quickly. Um, hmm. There's this book called There and Not There, which is a woman trying to like tackle her her sort of being the descendants of Armenians. And I, I actually think I also the, the first chapter or two are just, I thought, one of the better uh, sort of laying out the problems of trying to tell a story like this. Um I don't know what are others? I can't think of many. Uh, Yeah, it's not it's like not (laughs) it's not the kind of book I I generally read.
0: What does the academic study of conspiracy theories add to our knowledge of Nazi Germany? How does Nazi Germany complement and challenge our assumptions about conspiracy theories?
1: Uh, I, I think anyone who's done any, even a casual study of contemporary conspiracy theories, you will see very quickly how prominent the role um, Nazi history and to maybe in a more hidden way, but Nazi ideology plays, and so it's kind of wild. Like scratch any conspiracy theory, and pretty quickly you'll get to Nazism. And like I'm talking about like the moon being fake or. JFK, like at a certain point, you'll start seeing Nazis creep in. Um, and I think, you know, I, I'm not a scholar of conspiracy theories. I'm just like a schnook who spent a few months reading about them. Um, but it does seem to be this sort of like event or movement in relatively recent history that sort of broke our collective brains. And so like we just really couldn't grasp like the magnitude of evil or immorality. And so like the, it just it feeds uh, conspiracy, uh, conspiracy theory and conspiratorial thinking.
0: How did the Polish government's campaign against using the term Polish death camps impact your search and research?
1: Uh, It didn't. Not really. I think it was sort of um, part and parcel of a larger movement or shift or tendencies towards a a revisionist and nationalist ideology promoted by like a right wing and nationalist and Catholic government. And so like, it didn't really, like, I had like my own little personal legal mission. Uh, The larger, it was very disheartening to see a country that had made like unbelievable strides, um, sort of on an institutional governmental level, uh, try to undo trying to do that and try and sort of really double down um, on these like revisionist and nationalist narratives. And like, it's somewhat hard to relate as an American because like our sort of, these fields are sort of diffused and the country's so big, uh, but in Poland, it's a lot more homogenous. Um, and so you have a government branch that's in charge of memory, for example. And so you'll have like stuff like textbooks or museums, and so the government's all of a sudden sort of uh, firing certain museum directors who are not hewing the line, and sort of installing uh, people who are a lot more nationalist, or sort of reimagining what a World War II museum might look like. And so these things—it uh, was the, overall—it was like very disheartening to see this being played out.
0: How did you handle the claim? That the Holocaust be considered "quote unquote" a natural disaster. How did you cope? Say it one more time. On pages two twenty six and two twenty seven, you have an anecdote where you were told by by people in the Polish system that the Holocaust was a natural disaster.
1: Oh, I see. It well, that it did, was like a there was like a legal thing that. I was trying to get the the deaths of my relatives uh, recognized. And so I just found it sort of bewildering that the fact that had they died by natural disaster, uh, that would have been legally recognized and the Holocaust was not being recognized. And so that sort of broke my brain.
0: What did your encounter with Poland's justice system teach you?
1: Um, I think it was it was eye-opening you know I have been very lucky I have not had to deal with the justice or legal system in Canada or in America um, and so this was my real my first foray into dealing with uh, bureaucracy or a just a judicial system. And what was um, you know a lesson I I learned in some small degree was that there could be systematic, sort of uh what's the word I'm looking for you know it's sort of um even if everyone's intentions are good the system can still um undermine your efforts and so like even if every judge and every bureaucrat was sort of like doing what they were supposed to do and do it in like Believed in the cause and not out to get me, the system, because there had been no sort of proactive legislation or activism to address certain concerns of and that certain people, and not just Jews, um, there could be sort of a built-in systematic. Uh, what word am I looking for? Like, like some people are not treated fairly, discrimination. And so that was something I had never experienced before, Um, but I sort of had to confront it on some level in Poland.
0: On page 88, uh, there's another quote I'd be interested to ask you about. Um, You write, I came to think of exploring as a response to what, I can't say exactly, to a kind of disturbance, to the traumas that are stored, literally and otherwise in the ground. It's something like an unease, an apprehension, a discontent with this particular land and this particular history with these sites and their stories and secrets and tragedies. You hang out with these guys long enough and you start understanding how metaphorically powerful the concept of underground is. The metal detectors scanning the ground for what's not supposed to be there. The conflation of buried treasure and buried bodies and buried answers. Can you Share with us what you mean in this insight mm. on page eighty-eight.
1: Um, it's a it's like a good big one. I I just think you know, spending time with these treasure hunters uh, gave me a search of context to start appreciating history on a different level. I think you know, you grow up the way I grew up, and you sort of, you learn, or you learn, you learn that it's important uh, about Holocaust history, even if you don't learn that many specifics. But it's very geographically untethered, and so it's sort of like it happened there, and like you don't have a sense of space. And the treasure hunters were coming from this like hyperlocal, uh. hyperlocal, and so like they deal with the land, they deal with the gra- like the literal ground. And so there was like a like sort of a slow incremental realization of like this of that being a different approach and one that I think initially my instinct was to find very disrespectful because they sort of weren't it wasn't the jewish narrative um and i think there could be problems with that of sort of like not recognizing death properly or not recognizing genocide or tragedy or suffering and sort of talking about things of like mystery but um there was also like a fundamentally different approach to this history which is again very like literally grounded and sort of like dealing with the space as space and not just as sort of untethered memory. So something along those lines.
0: What does reclamation mean to you? Do you see reclamation as a form of a crusade? What are the ethical implications involved in reclamation?
1: Um, that's, I, you know, I think it ends up being, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to speak to sort of define these things. And I think for people who have this mission of reclamation and it's it's a very very common one uh which is something i sort of knew and then since the book came out i've really discovered because a lot of people have reached out to me to share their own stories of reclamation which is something i'm very grateful for um you know people it what's interesting about it is that it all it means more than than the thing you're trying to reclaim and so it's sort of a vehicle for either sentiments or, or, or people or relationships or whatever it might be. And like, I applaud that. That's, I think that's wonderful. Like, I don't, you know, I think when it gets sort of um, talked about on a bureaucratic level or among institutions, it ends up being really a question of like rectification. And you're like, sure. But certainly not just that. And like getting something back doesn't undo sort of uh the the, the pain for it, the pain like, you know, or on you know, a like sort of simpler level, getting sort of money uh for trauma or death doesn't uh doesn't make it better. Um so I found this sort of mo- most interesting and most meaningful when it's used to ca- sort of carry those sentiments or to sort of figure out what those sentiments even are. And so I see it as like a, a personal vehicle of meaning.
0: What does your book teach us about bureaucracy and the ways bureaucracies work?
1: Uh, that they're, they're slow. <laughs> they're slow.
0: How has your book been received differently by readers and audiences in Israel, the US, Europe, Canada? Is there anything that is revelatory about the ways that different communities have responded to your book?
1: Uh, Well, the book did not come out in Israel, so I can't speak to that. Um, It did come out in Europe. So far, it's come out in Netherlands. Um, and so I, I, you know, that was, that was a highlight. I got to go to the Netherlands for that book launch. I, I think the, what's the only, the major difference there was that it's sort of my audience was not, or sort of the most vocal audience was, wasn't Jewish and sort of like in America and my book talks and lectures and, um, you know, media stuff. It's just, even when it's like not necessarily Jews, it feels, it feels Jewish. It feels like my audience is like a sort of Jewish or like being within like a Jewish mindset and the sort of they're experiencing it like as like me as a Jew going back to his Jewish grandfather on his Jewish mission. It In, in the Netherlands, it wasn't like that. There was just like no Jews as part of the conversation. So it felt they were, it was, a, I found it to be a, a, more interesting and sort of like more reflective, like they wanted to understand it in a bigger context. And so, um, but the book will be coming out in Poland and in Germany over the next uh, few months. So will be interesting to see how it plays there.
0: Can you describe to us your grandfather, Meyer Menachem Kaiser, what was his personality like? What did you know about him? What did you not know about him?
1: Uh, I didn't know anything about him, really. And so um, he was born, he died before I was born. Um, and and like, he was never really described to me. Not really um, my father's strong suit and sort of uh, sort of conjuring a person. And so I knew very little. I knew sort of like all, everything I knew about him was very vague and sort of like, I knew he was a nice guy. I knew he was, he cared about his health a lot. Um, that's all. I knew he went through the war, but I didn't know anything about it. And um, he died, you know, really young. he died and he was only 56 years old. So, you um, know, um, my father was in his mid-20s when he died. And so um, I don't even know how well my father knew him, to be honest. And so I just I knew basically
0: nothing. You're right. Uh, the following in a, in a quote that I'd be curious to ask you about. We guard our histories very zealously, but the truth was that I didn't see the process as particularly unfair. Absurd, sure, and very annoying, but absurdity and inconvenience are features of bureaucracies everywhere. In our case, the absurdity and inconvenience were more pronounced than usual, but still, death requires paperwork. The process was clunky and frustrating, but nothing about it. At least the outset struck me as pernicious. Can you contextualize that quote? Uh, What did you mean to say? um, How does it advance the themes present in your book?
1: Uh, You know, so that's sort of when I, by the initial hurdle of the reclamation process was getting the, the state to recognize that my relatives were in fact dead. And so i think the when people heard that their initial reaction was sort of shock to them it felt like so overtly like discriminatory or even anti-semitic that you're like what do you mean you're these people died in the holocaust how could it be that the state is requiring you to sort of quote unquote prove that and you know my response at the outset to that was I don't, you know, I think that's sort of unfair and ungenerous. I was like, you know, they, I, these, are the bureaucracy is bureaucracy is going to be bureaucratic, and so you're like, yeah, they died in the Holocaust, and I don't, you know, from a bureaucratic standpoint, we don't have their death certificates, and like to get things done, you might need it. So like, I wasn't, you know, my, I was trying to make an argument to sort of like to mitigate it or to sort of uh, dampen it or temper. This, this sort of criticism because I was like, you know, let's say someone disappeared in Canada and you needed to sort of get, you know, you wanted to make an inheritance claim, you would have to do the same thing. And so uh, it that, that was like sort of the early stages of the reclamation process in which I was really in this position of like, you know, no, this, the, no one's out to get me, the government, Works, you know, well, is well intentioned and, you know, yada, yada, yada.
0: There are a number of minor characters in the book that I'd be curious to ask you about. Um, For example, Larissa and Jason. Mm -hmm. Um, Another would be uh, Andre and Yannick. Can you tell us about these individuals?
1: Sure. Uh, So, Andre and Yannick. Are not. I think Anjay is is not such a minor character. So Anjay is basically like my main treasure hunter. Mm-hmm. Um, he's you know he's the one he's the one I first met. He's the most enthusiastic. He's the one I've had the longest relations with him. He's a complicated guy. Um, Yannick is kind of a sidekick. So I didn't really develop as much of a relationship with Yannick. Um, Anjay is a very charismatic, uh, very devoted treasure hunter who's sort of the de facto leader of one of the larger, mm-hmm. better organized uh, expedition groups, they call them, which are basically treasure hunter clubs. And then Larissa, Larissa was a works at a museum in, in, in Krakow. She's not Jewish, but she sort of devoted her life to sort of Jewish memory. And Larissa has just been, you know, there's just so many people like this. Larissa happens just to play a more prominent role in the book of who just like open themselves uh, to helping me. And so it's just very hard to navigate certain things because, you know, I don't speak Polish. So Larissa helped translate things. She accompanied me on one of those early trips. She accompanied me on more trips that just actually just didn't make it in the book. Um, And Jason, so, and Jason was someone like, I, you know, I consider Jason, this part's not really in the book, but his name is Jason Francisco. He's an extraordinarily talented photographer. Um, But beyond that, I considered him sort of like one of the, most interesting minds um sort of working today on these questions of like jewish memory in eastern europe and he's devoted like a tremendous amount of time uh and photography and writing and so i I was just very lucky early on that jason you know we became sort of fast friends in those early years and that jason was invested in my story and like would accompany me and like take exceptional photographs uh, but also beyond that sort of be someone to sort of sound out some of these ideas. Um, and so Jason's contributions are even, they, they're not limited. You know, They're not limited to the episodes that are in the book. They're, they're pretty, they, they run very deep. Uh, and to a large extent, Jason helped form how I think and approach some of the questions.
0: Some other secondary or minor characters I'd be curious to ask you about are, are Merrick, Kristoff hannah joanna are there any of those that you'd like to describe in some capacity uh
1: so joanna joanna also to me i maybe she doesn't show up so much but not so minor so joanna uh was sort of my guide for the treasure hunters so she's like i would not i would not have been able to do anything without her so she's a uh like an author in sort of a you know in the treasure hunting community um, and the an expert on all things silesia and so joanna has been like unbelievably gracious uh over the years and uh accommodating and so joanna i don't remember who else
0: you said uh christoph merrick Shish. hannah
1: Oh, so Hannah, I I think you're referring to one of the women who lived in the building Mm -hmm. who, you know, ended up being sort of a, like wildly coincidentally being like an actual expert on Sosnovitz real estate and helped me understand that I was in the wrong building. Krzysztof is one of the treasure hunters who definitely was a minor character. And I I don't know the first person, Merrick?
0: Merrick. Kristoff Merrick and Merrick. Oh, sure. Merrick.
1: Oh, I mean, yes. Merrick was one of the other treasure hunters. Um, like a really sweet, a sweet kid. Like one of the younger ones who spoke good English. Uh, and so who also who, he was a little bit easier for me to relate to, you know, than uh, some of the older treasure hunters. So um, a good guy to meet early on. And one of the guys who read the book in English, and we've communicated about it actually.
0: One final question I'd be curious to ask you would be um, about another quote that you have in the book. Um, you write as follows on page 252, I do not trust the genre I am writing in, that of the grandchild trekking back to the Alteheim on his fraught memory mission. It's too certain, too sure-footed, meaning is too quickly and too definitely established. There is no acknowledgement of the abyss, the void, the unknowable space between your story and your grandparents' story. Why did you feel this way?
1: Um, you know, cause then the day I, I didn't get the building back and I also didn't not get the building back. And so you're left with these questions of you're like, what does it even mean? So I was really forced to interrogate my own motivations and like interrogate, try to figure out basically the stakes. And so, um, yeah, you know, this is part of the reason I don't relate to a lot of the other books. I've always felt their, their sort of mission is so definitive and so sure and they know what they're going for and they know what it will mean and they like know the person they're trying to honor or something and i just don't have that and so i'm really trying to figure it out from scratch and so you know i to me it was important to sort of be open about my suspicions of uh of my own motivations um and like my own mission and so that was my mea culpa in a way
0: Thank you, thank you for sharing, and thank you for everything that you taught us, both in this dialogue and interview today, and in the extremely erudite and well-written and eloquent book that you've shared with the world. Um, One last thing I'd like to ask you is, what are you working on now since this book is over? Do you have a current project in any way?
1: Uh, I'm working on a magazine story about uh, an ongoing dispute in Montreal.
0: Wonderful. I wish you the best of luck with it. Thanks, Ari. As we bring this dialogue to a close, uh, I'm your host today on the new books in Jewish studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. I've been in dialogue with Menachem Kaiser, who was the winner of the 2022 Sammy Rohr Prize for Jewish literature for his book, Plunder, a memoir of family property and Nazi treasure published in New York by Huffton Mifflin Harcourt 2021. Thank you. Thanks so much.